Good morning, church. Adele Gaburi was a woman who lived uh, in a middle-class community, a pretty nondescript, typical working-class community in Massachusetts. And uh, Adele was well along in years and had some limited mobility, so she really re- relied on a network of people in her neighborhood, community, family. Uh, it wasn't tight-knit by any means, but she had people who were willing from time to time to step in and, and help out where they could. But with her limited mobility, uh, her neighbors weren't totally surprised when over time they saw less and less of Adele. She just couldn't get around as much. Uh, but the neighbors took it upon themselves in some ways to, to help out. So there was a car on Adele's property that over time had just filled up with, with trash. And this next door neighbor thought, oh, this, I mean, this, this doesn't look that great. So we called a, a wrecking service and had this car towed from Adele's property. Later that winter, they had a, a pipe that froze and burst, and there was water actually pouring out of uh, one of uh, the back doors of Adele's house. So the neighbor called the utility company. Utilities came and shut off the water and took care of the issue. The neighbor across the street over time noticed, man, her lawn just looks, looks terrible. And she described it as just an eyesore kind of in the community. And so the neighbor started paying her grandson uh, $10 an hour to come over and to mow uh, Adele's lawn and just to help take care of it. The mailman came every day and he would just drop the mail through the slot like he did every other day. And so life just sort of carried on around Adele's house. Until finally one of the neighbors noticed, he kind of looked through the window and, and saw that the pile of mail hadn't been touched for, for a while. So he gets concerned and he contacts the police and he says, hey, I think you should just do a well visit on my neighbor Adele's house. And so the police go over and they enter the property and they find out that tragically Adele had passed away four years prior. The neighbors had been, they called it helping and in a sense it was, Uh, doing all of this stuff around the house, but no one actually stopped to check in relationally with Adele. No one actually had a face-to-face conversation with her. And what you see is, and as the conversations with the neighbors emerged, it wasn't so much that they wanted to help, they were really afraid that her unkept property would tarnish the image of their working-class neighborhood. They didn't want her, uh, her lawn that was unkept and this car full of trash to become an eyesore as it did. One neighbor said it this way, He said, people have their own lives. They go their own ways. And he said, neighbors just don't want to get involved with neighbors. And this highlights for me one of the spiritual conditions of our time. And it's this reality that we live in a culture and we live in a time where it's really easy to be at the center of things personally. It's really, really easy to make the world about me. And and we like to be at the core of things. We like to be noticed. I think we see this spiritual reality also emerging in this phenomenon known as the selfie. You're familiar with the selfie? Uh, This is, see, when I was in high school, this is where I feel old. Selfie wasn't a thing. You know why? Because my Nokia brick phone wouldn't even take pictures, right? That little green screen, the battery would last for three weeks, but I couldn't take pictures, right? But now that suddenly every smartphone has this built-in camera and we love to take selfies, Actually, they published a study in 2018, the Journal of Family Medicine. From 2011 to 2017, there are 259 documented cases of death by selfie. 
No joke. And, and they said a portion of those, they weren't even engaged in risky behavior. It wasn't like they're riding a motorcycle, taking a selfie. They said it was sometimes people just in the flow of everyday life. But the problem is, um, psychologists have said we have this thing called selective attention, meaning that your brain can only handle so much stimuli. And so they said what happens is when a person is taking a selfie, all of their attention is on the phone and we essentially become numb to what's happening around us. Because your brain is just processing this moment when you take a picture that foregrounds yourself in the picture, right? The selfie is all about putting myself front and center in the frame of the picture. Now, I don't want to feel guilty if you take selfies. Like, that's not my point here, right? But I do want us to think about what is it that we're communicating? A psychologist uh, by the name of, of Sarah, Sarah Diefenbach, she said this. She said, I think we take selfies in part, she says, to communicate with people we love. She says, but we also take selfies to build self-esteem, to curate our self-image, and catch this, she says, increasingly to build our personal brands. It's easy to be a social media influencer. It's easy to curate a particular image of myself that is what I want to portray, and the spiritual condition of our time is one in which we want to make ourselves first and foremost front and center. It's life is about me, and it's really easy to make it all about me me. So the passage of scripture we're going to look at this week is one in which John pushes us to wrestle with this reality that Jesus calls us to a life that looks so much different. It's a life that Jesus calls us to that's not about me front and center, but a life that puts Jesus front and center. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, we read this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Let me just stop there. This is a little aside, but I love this. After Jesus taught Nicodemus, he goes out into the Judean countryside and he just spent some time with the disciples. Did you notice that? He just spent some time with them. I love that. Now, John also was baptizing at a non near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who speaks from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So there's this moment where John the Baptist and his disciples are out in the Judean countryside, as they've done many times before, and they're going about uh, the typical flow of, of John the Baptist's ministry, which is to baptize people. And this baptism is a baptism of repentance where people are saying, I want to turn from life as I knew it, and I want to turn back to God. 
And in, in, in this whole story, John, the writer of the gospel, he, he continues the theme that we talked about last week. There's something that John wants to teach us about the identity of who Jesus is and what that means for us. You'll remember last week in the first half of John chapter 3, we talked about the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, a Pharisee. He's an expert in Jewish law. He's an expert in the Jewish scriptures. Nicodemus is the man that has all the knowledge. And he comes to Jesus. And if you remember the story, he says, Rabbi, I can see that you're a great teacher. And the whole first half of John chapter 3 is Jesus helping Nicodemus understand that he's so much more than just a great teacher. He tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can't even begin to understand who I am or what I'm about until God does something new in your heart, until you were born from above, until your life is transformed. And then we talked about John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And we talked about the beautiful reality that Jesus is not just a great moral philosopher. He's not just a great teacher. No, Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the very son of God. Now this week, John continues this theme. You'll notice in verse 22, this chunk of scripture began with this little phrase, after this, right? John is tying what he's going to talk about this morning back to the first half of John. In other words, John and his gospel is not done teaching us about who Jesus is and what his identity as the son of God means for us. So now John and his disciples, as I said, they're in the Judean countryside, they're baptizing and lo and behold, Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, for you and I, we're thinking, that would be amazing. Jesus shows up. This is, this is what we've been waiting for. I mean, this, this was literally John the Baptist. This was his call. This was his mission in life was to prepare the way for Jesus. And now Jesus is here. But did you notice how the disciples of John the Baptist respond? They're ticked. Right? Jesus shows up on the scene. And, and suddenly, everybody that they were baptizing, they, they, they now go over and they're following Jesus. And John the Baptist's disciples are like, what? what gives? Jesus, this is our turf. We've been baptizing since way before you were here, Jesus. What gives? Aren't there other places you could go baptize? And, and they're upset. And, and the tension that they're facing is that Jesus is gaining a following, which means their influence, they feel, is decreasing. And so they face this tension. Wait, wait, this, this thing was a little bit about, about them, apparently. Because they're they not celebrating the fact that Jesus has shown up and is doing something new in their midst. They're frustrated by this. In fact, did you notice how they approach Jesus or, or what they approach John about Jesus? In verse 26, it says this. They came to John, this is John the Baptist, and they said to him, Rabbi. Now notice that they approach John the Baptist with a term of respect. Rabbi just means teacher, but it was a, a title of respect and honor. They say, Rabbi, now catch this, that man... The one you testified about on the other side of the Jordan? Yeah, look, he's baptizing everybody's going to him. Did you notice they call Jesus that man? Right? Nicodemus at least called Jesus rabbi. I can see you're a great teacher. John's disciples are like, yeah, that dude over there? Yeah, bro's stepping on our territory. Right? They, they call him that man. And I think it's, it's fascinating. Did you notice they also say that man that you testified about? which tells me that the disciples of John the Baptist, they remember the testimony. Can, can I read you John's testimony about Jesus? This is John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who was before me 
has come after me because he surpassed me in every way. That's John's testimony about Jesus. John declares, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, chapter 3, verse 26, John the Baptist's disciples see Jesus, and what do they call him? They don't go, oh, it's the Lamb of God. They go, yeah, it's that dude, that, that guy who's taken away all of our followers, and they're frustrated because Jesus gaining a following means that their influence is decreasing because they're wrestling with this reality that they have placed themselves at the center of this whole thing, and they've made it about them. And the thing that I find so annoying is I resonate way too much with John the Baptist's disciples. It's way too easy to make things about me. But when we make things about us, I want to suggest to you there's at least four things I see in this passage that happen when we make things about us. The first thing that happens when we make things about us is we're not concerned about what God is doing, but we're only concerned about what it means for us. And what I mean by this is we're not asking spiritual questions. When God does something that disrupts the status quo of our life, we don't say, God, what are you up to? God, what are, what are you doing in my life? Usually, if you're like me, I just get frustrated that God interrupted my five-year plan for my life. All right, God does something, he course corrects, he changes uh, the, the direction of my life, and, and part of me wants to step back and go, whoa, 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 God, this isn't what we agreed upon. I don't do well with sudden course corrections. I, I frequently will tell my wife when she surprises me with something, my phrase is, that wasn't on my radar. Like, you, you have to warn me. I don't do surprises well. And, and occasionally, God will redirect my life. And my question is not, oh, God must be doing something. God must be working. God must be moving in a new direction. My response is usually annoyance. God, this wasn't my plan. What are you doing? And when we make things about ourselves, we tend to not focus on the spiritual reality of what God might be unfolding. Rather, we only focus on how that impacts us. The second thing that happens when we make ourselves the center of all things is we can be unaware of what God is doing in the lives of other people. I find it fascinating that not one of John's disciples goes, whoa, 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 look at this. Look at all these people who are going to Jesus. Look at all these people who have found new life. Look at all of these people who have repented. Look at all of these people who are leaving behind destructive patterns and destructive ways of, look at the new life they're finding in Jesus. No, John the Baptist, his disciples, their concern is not at all on what God is doing in their life. Their concern is, again, on their sense of diminishing influence. And my concern for us is that when I make life about me, I stop focusing on what God might be doing in the lives of others, so I also stop asking spiritual questions about what God is doing in the lives of people around me. Because my only concern, and it's so easy to get caught up in it, is how am I increasing my influence? How am I increasing my authority? How am I increasing my social status and standing? And we can get so focused on that that we just become numb to what God is doing in the lives of people around us. The third thing that I think that unfolds when we make life about us is this. We see co-laborers as competition. We, we see everybody around us as a competitor. I mean, John the Baptist, his disciples, they see Jesus as competition. They don't look at Jesus and say, yes, Jesus has showed up on the scene. No, they see Jesus as a stealer of followers, they see Jesus as someone who is a threat to them. And I think for many of us, we live life when it's about us in a, in a state of competition. 
And for some of us, this competition is, is overt, right? You, you have this, no, nobody knows it, but in your mind, you have a tally of whether or not, like, you won the argument with your wife. You have a tally of whether or not you're winning in life with your neighbor. Like, okay, he bought a boat, but I bought a truck, so those are equal in value. Like, I think I'm still ahead in the game of life. Now, for others of us, it's not overt competition. For others of us, we're a little more insecure, and so we're just playing this comparison game. We're always running this tally in our head of, am I better looking than them? Are they smarter than me? Are they more successful than me? Have I accomplished more than they are? And we live life in this subtle competition with everyone. And again, we're not asking spiritual questions about what's God doing in your life? Because in the back of our mind, we're thinking, okay, if they're succeeding, that means there's less success to go around for me. And so we never enter into rejoicing when God blesses others because we always see ourselves in competition. I think the final thing that I see that takes place here is when we make it about ourselves, we focus on metrics over the mission. What I mean by metrics is the measurement of success. John the Baptist, his, his, literally his mission in life was to make way for Jesus. Literally his mission was to say, Jesus has come. And now Jesus has showed up on the scene. Their mission is being brought to fulfillment. And notice what his disciples say. They go, what's going on? Everybody's going over to Jesus. Like, yes, that's literally the point. That's literally the mission. But they see it as a failure because their measurement of success is their number of followers, not the mission they were called to. And for us, when we live at the center of our own world, thinking everything revolves around us, we focus on our perceived measurements of success. For me, this raises two questions. Number one, what is your core purpose in life? What is your mission in life? When, when it all comes down to it, not just what do you do for work, not just what's your vocation, what is your core purpose in life? My wife and I written on the mirror in our bathroom, we have four things. It says, what can I do today to build God's kingdom, to pursue my spouse well, to pursue physical fitness and health, and to pursue debt-free living? We have that written on our mirror. Those are four things that every day as I'm brushing my teeth, I have to look at and read and remind myself that the number one thing that I can do today is partner with God and what God is doing in the world. And many days I blow it and I don't live up to that for sure. But when it comes down to it, what's your core purpose in life? What drives your engagement with your family? What drives your engagement with your coworkers? What is your mission behind the mission? Yeah, you go to work to earn an income, but, but what is it that drives you in that? Secondly is this, what are your measurements of success? If you do not give time and energy to think about the mission in life that drives you and what you measure success by, I can promise you we'll adopt measurements of success that are probably not what we want. And so our measurements of success become the balance in our bank account. Our measurement of success becomes the likes and followers we have on social media. The measurement of success that we have comes with all of the material possessions that we have or the number of friendships that we have or how happy our relationships are. And we adopt all of these other measurements of success. The problem is you can have all the measurements of success. Jesus says it this way. He says, what good is it for man to gain the world and yet forfeit his very soul? If you don't think about the mission that drives you and what you're measuring success by, you will forfeit your soul for measurements that do not matter. And in the middle of this, John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, here's the bottom line. Here's the core truth. He says, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And what John the Baptist is saying is, is this life 
This existence is not about me. It's not about making my name great. It's not about lifting myself up. And church, I want us to wrestle with this idea. Are we ready to live with a mindset that says, how can I see the name of Jesus lifted high in my life so that I fade into the background, but I'm really good at pointing people to Jesus? Bless you. (laughs) That was a mighty sneeze. It was good. But what John says is true. He must become greater. I must become less. And there's a tension there because that means if Jesus is going to become greater, I need to be okay being willing to fade into the background of some things. And and I think we can make Jesus' name great four, four ways, I think, that I see in this text. The first is to refocus our life on our mission. I mean, notice what John says in chapter 3, verse 27. He says, a person can only receive what's given him from heaven. He says, you yourselves can testify. I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. And and John the Baptist takes this moment, and it's like he takes his disciples, and and he, he just like, I imagine he wanted to shake them a little bit, right? Like, guys, this is the very reason we came, and now you're mad at Jesus. But he takes this moment to refocus their attention on the mission of why they're there. John looks at his disciples, he says, guys, I'm not the Messiah. I told you I was only sent ahead of him to point people to him. And there's this moment of refocusing on the mission. For some of us, we need a moment where we refocus on the mission of our lives when we recognize that the purpose of living is not the acquisition of things and stuff and followers and success and influence, but the focus of life is relationship with Jesus and pointing other people to him. And the sooner you refocus your mission and priorities in life, the less painful that process often is. The more you build a foundation on the wrong mission, the more that has to be deconstructed before you can set it up on the right priorities. Secondly, if we're going to make the name of Jesus great, I think it's about faithfully serving where God has you. Notice what John says again in verse 27. He says, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. In other words, John points to two things. He says, God is sovereign and God gives me things to steward, but I can only steward what God has given me to steward and take care of. And as John is talking to his disciples, he says, my goal, my mission was to point people to Jesus. I did what God called me and now I'm pointing people fully to him. And and for some of us, we struggle with the season of life we're in because we don't like the things that God has given us to steward. For some of us, you thought by now you'd be further along. You thought your career would be more advanced. Maybe you thought you'd be in a relationship that you're not in yet. Maybe you thought you would have more in your retirement account. I don't know, but sometimes we think that God should have given us more by now. And for some of us, we hesitate to step in and to steward well the season of life and the sphere of influence that God has given us because we think we deserve more. For some of us, we're actually frustrated at the season of life that we're in because we feel like somehow God should have given us more. And we struggle to do what John says in verse 27. You can only receive what God brings into your life. That's all you can steward. And for some of us, I want to just tell you, right now, wherever God has you, whatever season you're in, serve faithfully right there first. Because no matter where you're at, God has blessed you and given you a sphere of influence, lives of people that you can make an impact in. And making the name of Jesus great starts right where you're at. This simple, ordinary, everything that you're already doing, but faithfully stewarding those with a spiritual intention focused on the mission of Christ. 
Third is this, to partner with God in the work that he's already doing. And, and here's, let me, I could summarize this point really easily this way, is to say, we play a part in what God is doing, but we are not the point, right? Jesus is the point, but we still have a part to play, that God invites us in. God says, listen, I'm doing this gospel thing. I'm, I'm inviting people into a relationship with me. And he says, listen, I want you as the church to come alongside me and be agents of grace and agents of life change, people who point others to Jesus. John says it this way. He says in verse 29, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom coming. So in other words, John says this. He's like, imagine this scenario. In this scenario, he says, Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride of Christ. John says, I'm like the best man. I'm, I'm the attendant. I'm the friend of the groom. In other words, John says, I'm playing a part. I have a key role. I'm not the point. Jesus is the point. So, th- so think about a wedding day, right? On the wedding day, as the bride is walking down the aisle, all eyes are on the bride and groom. Right? Everybody's looking, how is the groom going to respond? The bride, you know, she's radiant. And, and every, all eyes are on that. That is the bride and groom. That is their moment. Now imagine the best man steps up and taps the groom on the shoulder and is like, uh, bro, I think let's, let's tap out now. Like, I'd really like this moment to be about me right now. You would likely see a reality TV scenario unfold, right? That groom is thinking, no way, that, that's my bride. This is my moment. Step back, know your role, know your place, right? And, and what John says, he uses this metaphor. I think it's clever. He says, I am an attendant to Jesus. In other words, I serve his purpose, but the role is to make Jesus great. It's to lift him up. He's the point. I play a part. And, and I think this is amazing that God invites us in, that you have a vital role to play in this gospel work that's unfolding. So I just think, what would this look differently if on your way into work on Monday, you walked in with this mindset of, God, I believe that you're already in spiritual conversations with every one of my coworkers. Help me to have a sensitivity to the work that you're doing in your life and let me partner with you where I can. And maybe the spirit begins to bring to mind opportunities to enter into an intentional spiritual conversation or to offer to pray for someone or with someone and you become a key partner and a role player in the work that God is doing in the life of that person. We have a part to play, but we are not the point. It's all about Jesus. And finally, I think it's this. To make the name of Jesus great looks like just faithfully living out your new life in him. We we talked about this last week that if you want to enter the kingdom and be a part of this thing that God is doing, we have to be born again from above, that the spirit of God literally resides in us. And Paul says this in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If all we do is live out that redeemed, transformed life on fire with passion and zeal, you step into a workplace or you step into a family situation and if you exhibit the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that is so reflective of who Jesus is, people start to take notice. We live in a world that is anything but loving, joyful, peace, loving, patient, or kind. And when we live out the fruit of what the Spirit is doing in us, We cannot help but be a transforming agent in the world around us. And the bottom line in all this, the reason it matters, the reason it's key to make Jesus' name great is I cannot bring about life change in anyone's life. 
One of the things I tell couples when I have the opportunity to meet with couples who are struggling in marriage, one of the things I tell them is, listen, I cannot fight harder for your marriage than you can. There's nothing literally really that I can do in that moment except pray for them and help walk with them through some things, but it's Jesus who fixes broken marriage. When when people are stuck in addiction, there's nothing I can physically do. I can support them. I can come alongside of them, but Jesus can bring deliverance. When people are are physically ill or, or injured, I cannot bring healing, but Jesus can bring healing. And the reason it's so important to make Jesus great is what John says at the end of of this passage in John chapter 3. He says, the one who is above, Jesus, comes from above. In other words, Jesus is divine. John says, listen, I'm a person. I'm from the earth. But Jesus is different. This is the very son of God. And the reason it's so key to make Jesus' name great is Jesus is the one who saves and redeems. It's Jesus who leads and guides in truth. It's Jesus who speaks the very words of God, revealing the heart and purpose for the Father, for his children. The world is hungry and yearning for truth and hungry and yearning for the redemption and the new life and the reconciliation that only Jesus can bring. The best thing that we can do is to make the name of Jesus great, to lift him up, to point people to him, and to consistently say, this isn't about me, it's about Jesus. Because the bottom line is this. To believe in Jesus is to know life everlasting in relationship with the Father. That's what it comes down to. So here's the question. I want, I want this question to sort of haunt you this week. It's this application question. How can I make the name of Jesus great in my home, workplace, family life, etc.? In in the spheres of influence that you interact with on a day-to-day basis, how can you lift up the name of Jesus in those ordinary, everyday places? What does that look like? And, And I pray that you would ask God that question. God, what does it look like to lift up the name of your son Jesus in the places I live and interact with every single day? And I pray that in so doing, that we would be agents of grace and life change as we point people to Jesus. This morning, I think we have what I think is the most appropriate way to respond to a moment like this. We're going to take communion together. Uh, We serve open communion at Grace Point. That means you don't need to be a member. All we ask is that you know Jesus and are walking with him and you're free to participate. Um, If you're seated on the floor, starting with the front row, Um, In just a second, uh, as the band leads us in worship, you'll be free to make your way forward to receive the elements. Uh, Back row, likewise, starting from the back, there's stations set up, so you can just start from either end and cycle through. If you have a gluten intolerance, there are gluten-free wafers at each station. They're just individually wrapped, so you can look for those. Um, And then we ask if you just wait till everybody receives the elements, uh, we'll partake of this together uh, as a family, uh, as a meal together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll enter this moment. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and just this reminder that life isn't about us. God, I pray that we would be a people who every day have this focus on our mission to make your name great, Jesus. I pray that we would lift you up in our homes, in our workplaces, in our family relationships, in our friendships, in the places where we gather for community. Because God, when when your glory is made known and when your presence shows up, people are set free and lives are transformed and people are made new. And that's what we hunger and thirst for, Jesus. 
And Father, in this next moment, as we partake of communion together, Father, we are just awestruck at your love for us and your grace for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.